Grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. We implore you, Lord Jesus, that you would show your kindness upon us. Shower us with your great mercy, that we may be set free from our sins, that we be rescued from the punishment that we so rightly deserve. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. To confess is to say back unto God what he has first said unto us. And if I happen to not put of a, a fine enough point upon it last week, Jesus called the Canaanite woman a dog. And she agreed with his assessment. And she took God at his word. And used God's word as proof of her need. Luther agrees. Take God at his word. The greatest spiritual barrier mankind ever really falls into is calling God a liar. Disagreeing with what he has said about the world and about us. God has given us his law that we might be able to see ourselves. It is a mirror bright put before our eyes that we may adequately judge ourselves according to God's word and not ours. The law enables us to see our own sin that resides within our own flesh which stems from our inborn failure to love, to fear, and to trust in God alone. But confession of sins is more than just acknowledging that sinfulness. You see, confession has two parts. And the first part, of course, is to say amen unto God's verdict upon us, that we have sinned. We have sinned in our marriages, we have sinned against our neighbors, we have sinned against ourselves, and we have done these things in thought and in word and also in deed. But the goal of confession, the second part of confession, not only that we accept God's word about us, but that we accept God's word to us, that we receive the absolution for our sins, that is from God. That absolution is given to us through the pastors as God himself. And we do not doubt that word, but we fully and freely believe it, that our sins are forgiven by God. To illustrate, we look at the dynamics through the David and Bathsheba story. David starts his story out immediately with sin. It's the springtime when the kings go to war and David sends his army to war and he sits up on the top of his, pass, his castle, his palace, bored. Bored men are something to be greatly feared. It's because they are not fulfilling their vocation as men. And so bored David, not fulfilling his vocation as king and leader of the armies, has not gone off to be with his army as he's supposed to be. He's left that to other people to do. Sitting upon the top of his castle going, 
Oh, I'm bored. What shall I do today? And off in the distance sees a woman on her roof bathing in what she hopes or believes to be privacy. David immediately goes, huh, that seems interesting. Invites her to the castle, woos her, has sex with her, and makes her pregnant. Now, when David finds out that he's, she's pregnant, he's got a quandary upon his hands. And so he attempts to cover up his sin by inviting her husband Uriah back from the front. By the way, Uriah is actually doing his job. So he stops him from doing his job, invites him back from the front, thinking that obviously Uriah would want to make a stop at home before going off back unto war. Except David forgets that Uriah is a man of honor. And is under a vow, and under that vow, he may not have sex with his wife while his comrades are off fighting in a war. So he doesn't go home. Three times he doesn't go home. Rather than confessing his sin and dealing with it, David again tries to cover it up. This time he does something a little bit more vile. He arranges for Uriah to be murdered in combat. Once Uriah is dead, his life is over, his honor has been ruined, David reasons that he will be able to live out his life without accusation and without the shame of anybody finding out what he has done. It's at this point that God intervenes. God sends unto David a pastor by the name of Nathan. God will it. That God would send all of us pastors and confessors and friends and family and neighbors and loved ones with the courage of Nathan. Somebody that God can send into our lives to speak truth to the lies that we tell each other. Nathan tells David a story about a wealthy man who has stolen a wee little ewe lamb from a poor man. The wealthy man has robbed him of his property in order to prepare a feast for a visitor, David is incensed by the rich man's actions and exclaims, as the Lord lives, the man who does this deserves to die. David has stolen so much more. You are the man. Nathan's words to David. And the law kills David. That's what the law is supposed to do. It's supposed to make us squirm. It's supposed to make us realize what it is that we have done. The law always kills. David then confesses. I have sinned against the Lord. And there's no further attempts to evade his guilt. There are no more excuses, only a confession of truth. Upon that confession... Nathaniel, or Nathan, pronounces absolution. The Lord has put away your sin, you will not die. Before God, we confess our sins. All of them. Even the ones we don't know about. To deny that confession is to call God a liar. 
In the Lord's Prayer, we ask God to forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. In the confession and absolution in a corporate manner, we recall the words of, of Psalm 51, where we confess all of our sins, those that we are aware of, and most assuredly, the ones that we're not. The small catechism deals specifically with individual or private confession. That is confession that an individual might make to their pastor or to their confessor. We are taught to examine ourselves according to the Ten Commandments. In light of our various callings, how have I been acting as a husband or a wife? or as a father, or a mother, as an employee, or an employer, or a customer, or a citizen? Have I lied? Have I cheated? Have I stolen? Have I done that which is unhonorable in any of the many and various estates that I hold? No one's forced to do this. No one's forced to make private confession. We don't force anybody to do it because it's a gift. It's a gift given by God to you so that you know. So that you can hear the words of God pronounced upon you and in your situation and upon your sin. Your sin has been forgiven. Christ himself, himself speaks through the pastor. I don't forgive sin. I don't have that authority. I don't have that power. I didn't do anything to redeem you from your sin. I speak the word that God has given to me that you might hear God's word. I simply say the words. Absolution is the office of the keys in action. The office of the keys instituted by our risen Lord. His very authority to forgive sins to those who repent and retain those sins of those that refuse to repent. The office of keys is exercised within the church by means of the office, the public office of the ministry. Personally, when we talk about keys, I don't like keys. I don't like it when other people have the keys. I like to have the keys. Right? I prefer control. I like the whole idea of I know who's getting in and who's getting out. I don't like it when other people lock gates that I don't have access to. But the office of the keys exercised through the public ministry is not like that. This is different. These keys are not given as some sort of authoritarian, I choose and I set the limits. No, these keys are given to us in God's full and loving grace, in his love and in his mercy, that that love and mercy can be poured out evenly upon every single member of the household of God. This gift is given unto every single one of us. These keys to the kingdom come with great and a grave responsibility. It's life and death. Heaven and hell are at stake. These keys are the kingdom itself. To many, in a lot of English translations, it makes it sound like God has given to those keys to Peter and, and Peter, Peter himself. As if he's the only one who has any sort of authority over this. They miss the clear point of the text. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
In other words, when the sins of a penitent sinner are forgiven, they're forgiven in heaven. It's done. It's finished. You have already been forgiven. Likewise, the sins of those who are impenitent are not forgiven. They're bound not to be forgiven, not because Peter says so, not because the pastor says so, not because I say so, not because the board of elders says so, but because of the hardness of the impenitent's heart, because the binding of sin speaks truth that those sins are not forgiven, because the impenitent does not want them forgiven, they do not accept the judgment of God, they have called God a liar. Personally, I think this is the core of atheism in America. It's not that people don't believe in God. They just refuse to believe that he's there. And if I ignore him for long enough, maybe he'll just go away and leave me alone. I can do whatever I want. I don't see him. He's not there. The keys of the kingdom must be ministered in a manner consistent with which they have been given. They must be ministered according to the plan and the promise of God so that no one stands before God in pride. No one stands before God in their conceit. They must be shown their sin and told that they are not forgiven. They must hear those awful, terrible words that the kingdom of God is shut unto you. And even then those words are given in love for the purpose of love. For that great terrible threat of God's law is used to strike terror into the hearts and the minds of the impenitent that they be crushed, that they come unto the altar of God and they fall into confession of God and they accept the words that God has for them to them. That they are a sinner. Just like the rest of us. And God has forgiven their sin. What a precious, wonderful gift God has for each of us. That absolute knowledge that your sins are forgiven because Christ has forgiven you your sins and have given you his word and his sacrament and his promise as his bond. Go in peace and sin no more. Amen.